0: You're listening to Half Stack Highlights, a blogcast dedicated to showcasing the latest in indie talent, business, and creative opportunities for the dreamer in you. We bring you intimate conversations with up and comers, entrepreneurs, and fellow dreamers alike, and we're based right here in Chicago. Hey everyone, welcome to the beginning of our 2016 series. Thank you all for listening. For everyone who's downloaded Half Stack Highlights over this past year, it's been a fun and crazy whirlwind. This season, we're hoping to focus on the theme of explore, whether that means to explore a new career, art, journeys, or anything really. Last season, it was all about inspiration, but this season, I'm really hoping to go further with this idea and really showcase how people are exploring life's opportunities. We kick off this new season featuring an interview with the artist Gerhard Nodel, who recently released his latest book, What If Textiles? This book gives us a -a one-of-a-kind look at all aspects of his internationally renowned contemporary textile artwork. Gerhardt became widely known for creating these huge environments of cloth, and he truly explores how textiles can be seen beyond function and beyond their functional form. In this podcast, we had a really wonderful time just talking art and creating. Not just creating for what's popular and what makes you money, but to create and build a body of work and just get really good at what you do. Gerhardt brought some amazing insight on how the art world has really evolved over the last 40 years and the wonders of that as well as the potential pitfalls. Of course, we also talked about his book and about his career, which, mind you, is really vast. He went from studying art to working in education back to grad school, To really figure things out and then on to working in higher education and finally into being a working artist again in the studio, being able to use his hands and create again. We talk about what originally sparked his career direction and advice that he would give to young artists today about working in this industry. He really keeps it real. Continue listening for the full interview.
1: Gerhard, can you please tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to pursue your career as an artist specializing in textiles?
2: Sure. Well, it's a complicated uh, subject, but I'm happy <laughs> to try to reconstruct it very briefly. Uh, my my background, uh, I grew up in, in Los Angeles, actually born mm-hmm. in Milwaukee, but my family moved out when I was very young to Los Angeles joined my German grandparents out there. Uh, My father was in the building industry. He did a lot of work for motion picture, people in the motion picture business. My mother took care of home and my sister and myself. It was a wonderful, um, wonderful place to grow up. I um, loved going to my grandparents' house on Sundays for dinner. That was a, a family routine. And I remember very clearly... My inability to stay on my chair at the dining room table um, after the main course was served. And I Mm -hmm. loved slipping off the chair to the space under the table where there were just big round, you know, kind of rounded wooden legs and the lace tablecloth hung down and then there were the legs of everyone sitting around the table. It was a fantastic environment.
3: Mm-hmm. Somehow
2: I internalized that kind of experience, and it was the beginning of connecting to a variety of other experiences. And, you know, I think it's interesting in the long run. You probably found this talking with people, uh, other people as well. There are moments where particular experiences come into your life just they can be just a few moments of time, but they're not forgotten. And yes. those moments tend to stay with you through your life as major questions, questions as to recalling those experiences. So I just thought I'd start out and mention that little experience because it was quite wonderful. I yeah. uh, also was a, um, I, a boy soprano. I sang in a choir, and we were part of the Los Angeles Civic Light Opera Company, so I had a chance to sing in a number of performances. I loved backstage in the theater. I Mm -hmm. loved the darkness. I loved those velvet (laughs) curtains. I loved the mystery. I loved the exotic nature of all of those characters who were backstage preparing to go on stage. That kind of sense of a field of suspension where something beautiful and wonderful can happen. And I imitated some of those experiences when I made a puppet theater of my own in my parents' home and entertained the neighborhood kids and their parents <laughs> that would come to those shows. So, you know, it was really an experience of kind of building um, building a little bit of the, the, the groundwork for what I yeah. discovered later on when I... Um, went to uh, did graduate did undergraduate work which I did in Los Angeles I studied at UCLA
3: and Mm -hmm.
2: uh, took courses in a variety of areas but um, always focused in the area of art and Mm -hmm. I think that was mainly because I had some very good art teachers in junior high and high school in Los Angeles uh, who were just the most exotic types and I loved I loved what they did, you know, they were just so terrific in terms, like I had a painting teacher who said, do you know there are those little watercolor uh, boxes
3: that have a little
2: smell of red and blue and yellow and so on, and Mm
3: -hmm. most
2: teachers had their their, uh, students clean them out after they were finished painting so that they would be ready for the next person, and Mm -hmm. our teacher said, never clean out your box when some of the blue seeps over into the yellow with a little bit of red, you're going to end up with a color the likes of which you never could have described. You've never thought about that color. You know, so it was all those little bits and pieces of experiments with people who helped me to see ah, special qualities of an adventure that I, that I got very excited about. So so I, w- I was at UCLA and I, did, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was an art major and a music minor and I specialized in teaching and the reason for that was mm-hmm. that those, in those days there were really two alternatives in, in the art world. One was yeah. to be a fine artist which is a painter mm-hmm. or a sculptor, mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as I knew, and the other was to be a commercial artist, and I had no mm-hmm. interest in advertising. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll just follow this along and see where it goes, and yeah. uh, I did that and ended up with a um, teaching position at the Los Angeles City Schools um, in their top... The, the, it was really the... Um, the model school for the city, a fairly wow. new school, and there there were five art teachers there, and it was just fantastic. And I and I taught high school there for six years, and wow. uh, until finally I said, Ah, I love it, but I think I can do more. Went back, yeah. to do more graduate work, and one thing led to the next, you know. So that's kind of how the 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 experience ha, has has unfolded. As far as textiles are concerned, I -hmm. mentioned a couple of things that kind of set my interest in motion, but as an undergraduate student, I took a course in textile printing, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and the thing that I discovered from the beginning was when the teacher said, now I want you to go to a yardage store, and I want you to buy three yards, and we're going to print those three yards, well, Mm -hmm. I hadn't been in a yardage store, but... I went and looked around and, you know, all the ladies in the store were looking at me as if they say, what are you doing here?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and I found a fantastic bolt of fabric with a wonderful color. I remember deciding on it and bought it. And what I liked so much when I went into uh, the classroom to get to work on this is that this piece that had been folded up could be opened up flat, and it was three yards in length. The paintings that we were doing were all stretched on wooden frames. The canvas mm-hmm. was stretched on a wooden frame. Of course, that was fabric as well. But what I liked is the portability of the cloth as I came to know it. I loved yeah. its portability. I loved its tactile quality. Mm-hmm. I loved yeah. the way it carried color and the way and and texture and um, you know all of those, and then and then the fabric as a um, a medium that embraces movement. You know, when you think of all the other art media, movement is not a significant yeah. characteristic of them, yeah. but it is of textiles. So all of those kind of came together um, as being very seductive, <laughs> and I got hooked on it.
1: Absolutely. I love it. It's just like the, I absolutely totally agree, the idea that it's so tactile. You can touch it and feel it, and it almost becomes part of you, whereas typically with art, it's something that you're observing, and you're not necessarily always engaging, but when it yeah. comes to textiles, you're engaging with that piece, and I think that's so wonderful, and I think that's what's so interesting about what you're doing with your art. You're truly trying to engage the viewer and the person who is becoming part of it
2: yeah i'm i 'm really in i i am intrigued with that and i'm especially intrigued with finding some alternative ways to interact with with the medium i I had a wonderful experience i mentioned about while I was teaching high school I rented an apartment in Playa del Rey, uh, which mm-hmm. is at the beach, you know, in Southern California. And yes. um I walked into the apartment on the first day that I possessed it, and I noticed that the carpets were beige and the walls were beige and my furniture was covered with some beige stuff. <laughs> it
3: was really just
2: boring. And then yeah. I began to think about how to arrange my few sticks of furniture. And I reflected back on my parents' home where my father's chair was in a particular place and the couch was in a particular place. And what I discovered as I was doing some designs for the theater in the high school in which Mm -hmm. I was teaching was that I was using fabric very flexibly to Mm -hmm. create the illusion of an environment. And I began to connect that idea of the use of fabric in the theater, with the way in which we deal with fabric in our in our homes.
3: Yeah. So in yeah. my
2: home, fabric was a floor covering. It was window covering. You know, it was upholstery, etc. Mm-hmm. But. In fact, it wasn't used very inventively. So that Mm -hmm. really is what triggered the idea, uh, the beginning of a lot of invention in my own work. It took several years to kind of develop thoughts along those lines, but that's why I then quit uh, teaching high school, went back to school, and decided that the exploration of fabric as a means for defining environment was a pretty interesting possibility.
1: Absolutely. So can you touch on that a little bit more about that journey as you, you know, you left education, so to speak, and started to explore what your true passions were? How how did that go? You know, were there ups, were there downs? What was that journey like?
2: Yeah, well, you know... If you know me, you know me as a person who's excited about lots of stuff.
3: <laughs> and <laughs>
2: the, the plate is always very full with possibilities. But when, you know, the, as I mentioned, the high school experience was was great. I loved it. And, the, and I used that six years that I taught there. To really experiment and take the students to places that they hadn't gone to and places that I hadn't visited either. Mm-hmm. So that was terrific. What I discovered, however, was that I was not, my own creative interests were not being fulfilled to the degree mm-hmm. that I thought they could be. And yes. I thought the only way to do this is to isolate myself get back into my own world. You know, when I did undergraduate work, I was really pretty young. I mean, I graduated from UCLA when I was uh, just, you know, at the end of my 21st year. So uh, I was pretty young. The six years of teaching helped me to grow up, and I had 150 students a day and taught at five different courses in art and, you know, learned about myself as an authority, a person who could <laughs> lead other people yeah. and etc so I finally in that growing up process got to a place where then I was ready to return to myself but I could return to a place that I hadn't been earlier and going back to school was the right decision to make on on that score so at that point I had this idea about fabric as environment and I uh, went to an institution, California State University at Long Beach, where I Mm -hmm. knew a few of the faculty members, and I knew that they would give me the space to do what I wanted to do. They would not be guiding this program. I knew, you know, I felt so strongly about it. So immediately I got to work in that environment, exploring, you know, just saying, what is this? What is that? What is something else? And um, explored new materials explored new forms. I mean, at that period of time, for example, there were big advances being made with uh, knitted uh, tricot fabric, mm-hmm. you know, that was used for um, uh, for swimwear and other kinds of uh, uh, fashions that kind of mm-hmm. clung to the body or formed with the body. The structure was expandable. And I just thought, wow, this possibility of, Making a tent out of this would be fantastic, mm-hmm. and, and then the question is, well, the fabric was white, what if I printed it, or what if I applied other fabrics to the surface of it? What if I cut into it, et cetera, et etc So you know it was just a matter of doing one thing after the next, and then finally after at the end of that two year period, I had a graduate degree show had 12 major pieces. They gave me the whole gallery. I had 12 major pieces in the show. Um, It was a short exhibition, but it was really important because um, it allowed me to see myself, you know, to be able to walk into the gallery and see myself at a distance that way and say, wow, who made these (laughs) work? I mean, it was really... It wasn't, an, it, you know, it was another part of my process of discovery. It wasn't. Yeah. I'm not talking about an ego trip, you know. I'm talking about yeah. just that very important discovery that we make along the way, which allows us to grow.
3: Yeah, we take yeah.
2: stock of ourselves in various stages along the way in our life, in the sequence of life experiences,
3: and I yeah. think
2: most. People have ambition for discovering more about themselves but too many people never have the breaks that allow that those discoveries to have yeah. consequence and That's the beauty the of art making is that you're never as good as the next thing that you make
3: yeah. but your
2: reference is the last thing that you made yeah so the big question is what can come next and my, the graduate show was successful. Eudora Moore was there, came from the Pasadena Art Museum, and she wow. was doing the big California design exhibitions at the time. And she said, oh, I love your work. We've got to have it in the next California design show. And, of course, I didn't put up any resistance to that. <laughs> this was
3: my first
2: big break. Yes. And so most of the work went to the museum, a Pasadena Museum, which is now the Norton, Norton Simon Museum out there. Uh, it went there as part of this major exhibition, and then by accident, I got a call from Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan. They were looking for somebody to head their textile program after a year of, of a search, and some friends of mine said, oh, why not submit a proposal?
3: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: send them your portfolio of work, which I did. And within a couple of weeks, I heard from them, and they said, we would like you to come to in Michigan to interview, et cetera. And wow. within a couple of months, I found myself as the head of the major graduate program in the country in the field of textiles. Amazing. And you know i was twenty nine and that was just totally fabulous, so you know, I hate to say it, but some people are born under the right constellation of stars.
1: <laughs> and um, well, I mean I think though you touch on it you you did work really hard right out of you know undergrad yes. you're in teaching, and the, those five six plus years that you're you're working in education is helping you t- Build that leader, those leadership skills that you need to be able to head up a department like that. And then going back to explore who you are as an artist, and actually, you know, taking the art out of art teacher and actually putting the uh-huh. art back into yourself to showcase yourself as an artist. I think yeah. just adds to what you're what you're trying to do to fulfill those goals and dreams. So it's almost like it came back full circle for you after each of those bits and pieces throughout, you know that 10-year span of your life.
2: And, and you know, you probably found the same. When you have some successes, they give you courage to seek the yes. next level. Yes. And that is what's so important. You can't hide your light under a bushel. You There's a point. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all the privacy of the art-making world, it's got the work has got to be exposed it 's got exactly. to be seen some place where others can have can render an opinion a reaction, and if you 're very lucky, open up some other opportunities for yourself yes. so my My graduate work was all speculative, and the one thing that I still today am critical about my graduate experience about was that they didn 't help me at all to figure out how I could make anything practical. <laughs> of <laughs> what I was doing. It was all speculative. It's like working yes. in a science lab. You know, you do all these experiments and keep make notes of your discoveries, but you don't apply it to anything. So that was the interesting thing about then moving to Michigan at Cranbrook, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the place, but, you know, it's a 320-acre private estate wherein the, the founder of it created an environment for bringing forth the best that human beings can offer. And he yes. did that in terms of an educational pursuit. Well, first of all, he built a beautiful environment.
1: It's yes, the space like is seven. gorgeous.
2: And then he, so, uh, he worked with some of the world's most best artists, and uh, Elio Saarinen was the main architect who built the majority of buildings. Um, he brought outstanding people in the, in all the fields of the crafts there who contributed to the building of the place, and then he established this art academy, which was intended to uh, to really benefit from the environment in extraordinary ways. He thought i 'll give this gift of of art and environment to the world, but who can I bring there that is going to have where this environment is going to have a major effect. And students were the obvious answer to that. So that was kind of the beginning of the academy. So it was wonderful for me to go there because the place itself was exemplified the application of talent in the area of art. It was in architecture, in textiles, in glasswork, you know, in, in furniture. You know, the, Ray and Charles Eames were students there. Harry yes. Bichoya, well-known sculptor, was a student there. Aero Sarnan, who did the St. Louis Arts and all, you know, so many other things. TWA Terminal in New York, et cetera. He, he grew up there. Uh, so the place is really distinguished in terms of its its history, but then the big question is what do you make of it in the contemporary mode? You know,
3: so yes. that was yep. that
2: was what was put in my lap at that point.
1: It's amazing, and Cranbrook is just ah. Uh, if, if anyone is listening, go online, Google it. It's such a beautiful face, and I think. In terms of the art world, so many people put so much emphasis on New York, on the East Coast, and on the West Coast, Los Angeles, but there's such a beautifully budding and robust community of artists right here in the Midwest that Mm -hmm. I feel like we don't get enough attention sometimes. Can you share your thoughts a bit on perhaps some changes that you've seen in the creative fields over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years? What excites you about them? And maybe even yep. touch on what might scare you about them. Because I feel like there's so much changing right now. And there's just, we're in the midst of technology and and life mixing every day that there's yeah. good things and bad things that I think come of it. But I'd love to get your insight on how you see it affecting the
2: arts world. Well, you know, thinking back to um, the environment that I, I developed, I grew up in, uh, that was, you know, in the post-war years here in the United States, there was a kind of freedom that was created at the second end of the Second World War. Uh, people felt, oh, thank God, that all that mess is finished, you know. And yeah. uh, they, they were everybody rebuilding families and and so on. The economy had some fits and starts, but finally got it moved forward, et cetera. And you know that environment, in terms of the art world, uh, generated some interesting modes of thinking. You have to remember, in the earlier part of the 20th century, European art was still the dominant art form in the United mm-hmm. States. It's what people were looking at, and that and the people who could afford to buy good paintings, good sculpture, mainly were purchasing works that had a, a strong European uh, connection. Mm-hmm. But it was really the abstract expressionists, primarily in New York, who kind of began to open the floodgates of possibilities when they said, forget narrative, forget all the stuff that is making specific reference to life as it's lived on a daily basis, et cetera. Let's just look at the medium and its ability to uh, express something very powerfully in abstract terms, in terms mm-hmm. of that are kind of removed from the normal associations that we have with subject matter in art. And so the the beautiful paintings that began to develop, you know, I mean, at an extreme Pollock, for example, with his drip Mm -hmm. paintings and so on, you know, began to open up people's eyes and minds to the possibility of the medium and its expressive possibilities. How far can you go with it was the goal. So in every field of study, those young people who were in school at that time were encouraged by people that they studied with to experiment and in those days you could really experiment you could explore what was familiar a medium that was familiar but you could take it into territories that were very unfamiliar Mm -hmm. you know that's one of the big things that has changed in this world so much experimentation is done with the material world that a lot of what we have discovered creates an enormous range of possibilities for people mm-hmm. today, for young people yeah. today in particular. It's just that we're loaded with information, and by contrast to those days, years ago, that scope of information wasn't there to such a degree. Yeah. Um, so what what I I really benefited from that ability to experiment to explore to invent etc which was very important to me how do I look at it today in the first place in my own work I don't cease inventing I I mm-hmm. continue to love the whole notion that I can come up with something that is my own I, I wish yeah. I'm sitting here in my studio right now surrounded by new work that I'm doing I wish you could see it I'm excited about it <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know it's really terrific to sit there and look at something that I could think I can say I don't believe this has ever existed before
3: yeah. you know that's
2: really yeah. amazing but today what is you know what what are some of the issues Um, You know, in this this, uh, contemporary condition, I think one of the biggest problems today is fragmentation. You know, to do anything really well requires focus. And I'm just afraid that the popularity of being fragmented really takes too many people away from the core of what is essentially important in terms of really accomplishing something with your life. Yeah, um, It's kind of a difficult thing to say, because on the one hand, I appreciate all the access I have to information and experiences of other people, both directly and indirectly through new media. But on the other hand, I have to say, I think that we're living in a field of tension where opposites that are working in tandem with one another actually create a, a, a condition where we get stuck in, in between the, the polarities. Yeah. And we're kind of floating in between, sensing that it's important to do something, but mm-hmm. oftentimes stymied by the fact that every time we make a move in one direction, it's countered with something that comes from another direction. Yeah. And so nobody really is immune to critique. In fact, students today in school spend so much time discussing their work To the point where the language of the work becomes preeminent; it actually becomes more important than the work itself. Nobody will admit to that fact, but basically, don't. You know, a lot of uh, I know this by working with a lot of you know younger people who are coming into the area today. Where, you know, I'd love to have people come to the studio and look at the work, and I find myself saying, okay respond please say something okay
3: yeah so the
2: response comes forward and I find it so interesting that the territories that I would like to hear people respond to are hard to get to and sometimes those are simple territories such as man I think this thing is really beautiful Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why I'm responding to it that way, but it's Mm -hmm. touching something in a response, (laughs) of a response in my experience that I can't quite put my finger on, but I like being with it. Which is very different than saying, well, this looks like it fits into a social environment that is Mm -hmm. out there. (laughs) You know, part (laughs) of one of the... The major themes of our time, yes. this is all about gender. It's all about, uh, you know, uh, the, the plight of migrants, the political environment, et cetera, yes. et cetera, et cetera.
1: As opposed to the emotional connection.
2: Yeah. I think that's and so
1: true. Yes, yes.
2: And so one can say in the end, is that something that is special to the visual arts, that there is a powerful Communication that can occur through materials created, uh, dealt with by the artist, and that perhaps the greatest power is in the subjective side. It is in not not in getting it in in Mm -hmm. terms of the intellectual unraveling of the subject, but in sensing it in some way, feeling it. Yes, absolutely. It
1: and I think I think it could be taken to to that extent as well as we are opening ourselves and burying ourselves if we are emotionally connected, whereas if we're intellectually connected, it's yeah. not as scary of a space to
2: go into. Of course, of course. And when you're, you're um, you know, I think a lot of people are constantly interpreting their lives in language.
3: Mm -hmm. I mean, uh,
2: just Facebook, you know, ask a lot. It it seems like it's a permission to uh, intellectualize most of your actions. And then you assume that people are really interested. So you start writing something that's like a journal or a diary and putting it out in the world, you know. And and nobody says, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard (laughs) because it's so commonplace. We're all living 24 hours a day, you know, and that's in the a blessing eyes. to be alive. But yep. make something special happen. Don't yes. give me the mundane and the boring and the usual. Yeah. And also, I think if we are in a permissive environment as well, I'm not sure that, that a lot of teachers are even encouraged to give that kind of criticism.
3: Who, mm-hmm.
2: who helps you to improve? Who is there to say, look, this is really substandard? Inst- instead, we're all friends of one another. Uh-huh. In this age of socialization, we yes. pat one another on the back, and, you know, we say, like. like uh, yeah, I haven't used mm-hmm. that word very much, have I? Uh,
3: no, you
1: haven't. No, no, no. <laughs>
2: like, 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 let me do it ten times and I'll be done with it. <laughs>
1: that's something that's very, very evident in the career that I've had over the last five years, that when I was in school, you know, critiquing and tearing apart, you know, our work to make us better was the yeah. norm, whereas today it's all these gentle souls that we have to caress and we can't hurt feelings. And yeah. and yeah. it's like you have to find that happy medium between I want you to grow and I want you to be better and I'm gonna be terribly mean about your sucky artwork or this is what I think you can do to make yourself grow and be better. So I think it's interesting to see even the evolution of of how instructors are interacting with students and how you know, how all of that has has changed over the years. There's this funny um internet meme that I've seen where it's like in nineteen 19- sixties and there's a student and the parents are yelling at the student and the teacher is there and then in today's world it's the parents yelling at the teachers and the students are just right. standing there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly.
1: It's changed so much, but I think you're absolutely correct in that sense of yeah. everyone wants to be friends and we're in this whole permissive environment and the socialization with social media um has played into that and I think there can be good, but then like you said, there's that that negative connotation of then how do we truly grow if we we have to be nice to each other all the time? And I'm not saying that you want to be mean, but it's also important to critique realistically in order to help people evolve and grow and
2: change. No, that's true. That's true.
1: So you recently released a book, the book with Shift of Publishing. What if Textiles? And I love the name What if Textiles because it totally plays back to what you were talking about earlier. These What if ideas that you've you know utilized throughout your career. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about it and what they can expect from it? The
3: the uh,
2: well, I I haven't mentioned so so I was involved with graduate level education at Cranbrook for so many years, was director Mm -hmm. of the academy then for uh, 12 Mm -hmm. years as well. And, um, you know, at one point I'm saying to myself, hey, Gerhardt, while your eyes still see and your fingers still move, how about getting (laughs) back to the studio? Because especially when I got involved in administrative work, it was just impossible to maintain Mm -hmm. any kind of continuity in the studio. So I decided to leave that situation. I have a uh, wonderful studio in Pontiac, uh, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. And uh, the studio was there already. The materials were there, et cetera. I said, I'm going to get back to work. So that's what I did uh, six years ago. And I made a bargain with myself. Uh, The first Mm -hmm. bargain was I was not going to buy any new materials. I would only Mm -hmm. make things out of what I had. Secondly, Mm -hmm. I would not begin I would not even think about showing anything that I made until uh, the studio was so full that i had to um, I had to let it go and mm-hmm. you know that took years uh, to to get to, to that <laughs> to that point yeah. but but making the commitment to be with myself to begin to explore to work off of a kind of base of things that were familiar to me, was a good place to reenter my world, and within a very short period of time, I made some interesting discoveries. And one of those was that um, there was kind of a um, an analogy between my desire to um, to find the next chapter of my life and game playing and I especially liked in the notion of game playing the risk that's involved. Um, Mm -hmm. You probably know that there have been chess games that are played by people who really enjoy one another's company, but there are also chess games that have turned into warfare, where the Mm -hmm. risks were so high and the tension became so great that it responded, you know, it had significant consequences. I began to equate that ability for a game to have those extremes to the condition of life today where life is lived kind of you know um, kind of on a, on an edge for so many people um and it, it's a tough time uh, for for many people in this world and yeah. you know the way y- you you kind of walk this edge and but but you know Without a risk, without risk taking, you can't get to that healing side, to the, 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 the very positive side.
3: Yeah. So anyway,
2: I started using games as a metaphor in the work, and um, I also really um, enjoyed the, alian- the, 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 the uh, connection between game playing and decorative arts. Mm-hmm. In the decorative arts, I mean, most people would think of the term decorative as being non-essential or, you know, complementary to mm-hmm. making life a wonderful place, a <laughs> wonderful experience.
3: Yeah. Uh,
2: we decorate in that sense. But I'm thinking of it, especially in relationship to the history of textiles, as being something that also stands on the edge. On the one hand, it enhances, it has qualities of beauty that are associated with it. But on the other hand, it can be re- very reflective of mm-hmm. life experience. And there is, there historically, there are examples of textiles that have a dark side and a bright side to them. So yes. this kind of I- ability to stay with the textile and to open up its language so that it spoke of both sides it kind of seductive in that sense you know appealing yeah. and in engaging while appealing and engaging and beautiful to look at while also having a kind of subtext underlying uh, it with uh, that has to do with a kind of deeper meaning and maybe even a threat so yeah. uh, I began to make some games, uh, some actual games that could be manipulated, and it occurred to me then if I made a game uh, that could be somehow presented on the wall or adjacent to the wall, the question would be, can you look at something that is actually physically manipulable, but Mm -hmm. also when it is at rest, when it's presented as an artwork, it conveys the experience of interacting with it. So Mm -hmm. I go back to an old question that I asked many years ago. Is a sweater a sweater if you don't put it on? If not, what is it? Um, Things that are made to function are best understood when they're in that functional role, right? But. When you remove the functional aspect, when they're not performing, are they still what they are (laughs) defined to be?
3: Yeah, yeah. And
2: that's really intriguing to me. So can you look at something that is rooted in game playing, get a sense of the adventure, and then read it as an artwork that wherein the activity of the interaction with the game becomes part of the experience of interacting with it. So that that is kind of, a, maybe it's a very abstract in talking about mm-hmm. it, but it really sets off my mind in a number of areas, leading to me to do some big environmental work, a lot of wall-related work, a lot of games, especially dexterity games, you know, the kinds of mm-hmm. the little balls that roll around yeah. and fall into holes. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of big uh, dexterity games and, uh, you know, a variety of other uh, other types of work that grew out of that. But um, And so that led then to a body of work that really evolved over the six year period and, uh, you know, at one point I began to think about bringing it together as an exhibition and it was coincidental at a gallery here in Michigan uh, in the Detroit area, Wasserman Gallery, uh, offered came to the studio, loved the work, and offered me opportunity to show the work. And that was simultaneous with an invitation at American University, the Art Museum of American University in Washington, D.C., to do yeah. an exhibition. So that happened uh, last fall. And the Schiffer publication happened by accident as well
3: <laughs> because I was in a gallery
2: in Philadelphia where I, uh, Nancy Schiffer just happened to be there. And she came out of the back room and she had done a project with Cranbrook um, a, a, a while back on Harry Burtoya's work. And we talked very, very briefly. And in a week, I got a letter from her saying, you know, we'd be interested in doing a publication. And I was already interested in a catalog for the show. But in working with Schiffer, they opened up my thinking about this. So finally, we have a 250-page book, which is very exciting. And it allowed me to, you know, put a lot of thoughts together in ways that were... That are very important to me.
1: Absolutely. And it's beautiful and I love how it you know, it, it adds context to the artwork. You can go and you can see it and sometimes, you know, the artist may be there and you can talk with them about the work. But a lot of the time it's just you're seeing the artwork and you're adding your own context. Whereas with a book like this you can kind of get the thought process behind everything and I just think it adds such huh. a beautiful historical aspect to each piece oh, thanks. and and how it plays into it, yes.
2: You know, that the historical part was, uh, uh, I, I just would mention, you know, in terms of the chapters of the book, the first couple of chapters deal primarily with the new work. But then uh, I have a very large historic textile collection, which I began uh, to to develop mainly as a result of Wanting to show I've traveled all over the world I've, mm-hmm. I've had a great appetite since I was eighteen years old. I love international travel, but yes. when I started teaching, I realized there were things that I was seeing out in the world that I could not articulate and could not um could not um represent in terms of photographs or slides projected onto mm-hmm. a
3: screen yes, that yes. I had
2: to have the actual thing. So I started buying a few pieces here and there, and today, you know, there's six or 700 pieces in the collection. Yeah. But I thought in this book, since that historic approach has, or the historic textiles have always been so important to me, that I would include a chapter that selects 20 pieces from my collection and then write mm-hmm. a little a response to each one of them not explaining what they are necessarily mm-hmm. historically but what they mean to me because yeah. the important thing is how the past becomes a bridge to the present and to the future and going back to your earlier question about the state of the world right now I feel this is something that is extremely important
3: mm-hmm. People,
2: so many people are putting the past aside because the present is so complicated. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: yet the past is the best teacher that that one can imagine because it involves the energy of people throughout all time that sets the stage for the life that we live today. And um, it's so rich. And, you know, the textile field has... um, there there's a lot of wonderful stuff that is going on but there's also just a lot of stuff that could be so much better if people really paid attention to what to studying what they are doing in terms yeah. of relationships that have existed in other cultures in the past so what i'm doing right now uh to extend this for one moment longer in this conversation <laughs> is i am using actually Uh, uh, the body of work that I'm making right now started with an old 18th century Chinese silk tapestry, very finely woven. It was in miserable shape. I got it out of a garage sale someplace. I've had it for years, and at one point I decided to isolate the portions of it that were still intact.
3: Mm -hmm. And these
2: are small pieces that are about maybe one by two inches or three by four inches maximum. i I've glued some of those pieces onto sheets of drawing paper and Mm -hmm. extended the images off of the, from those fragments to make Mm -hmm. larger images. And ultimately, they have now been interpreted in textiles that are all purchased at Joanne Fabrics, all woven (sighs) in China. And I've interpreted the original fragments from the, from the original tapestry in photography so that the new pieces combine the Chinese fabrics from uh, Joanne's, from China, Uh along with photography of the original fabrics that I am responding to. And it all comes together in each of the new pieces. So I'm really excited about this, about taking something that belonged, you know, that was touched by someone several hundred years ago, bringing it into my work and doing it in such a way that I feel in, I wish I could have the weaver of the original textile sitting Mm -hmm. next to me. Because I think (laughs) she would see that what I'm doing is responsive to her, but I'm doing it in a way that she didn't think of. And now my pieces have parts that you can remove from them. The you mm-hmm. the photographs can be removed and they might be passed on to the next generation. Wow. So, you know, the moving from past through present to, to present. the future. Absolutely. And, uh, so it's it's a great adventure. <laughs>
1: I love that. So, you know, you're touching a bit on your creative process. But can you tell us a little bit more where you get your creative inspiration from and what does that design process look like when you're working on your projects?
2: Well, creative process. Uh, it usually starts with a week or so of doing absolutely unnecessary things. <laughs>
3: yeah. And
2: those are preceded by cleaning. I love to clean. clean i the, the debris. <laughs> yeah. I have to clean. I have to get things in order. And then I sit down with great determination to discover something that I don't know about. And I <laughs> mess around for a week or sometimes a couple of weeks. And, um, and I get to a place where I'm totally frustrated because what I'm doing, I don't regard to be the answer to what I'm looking for. <laughs> yes. And then I relax. And the next day I take a shower. And in the shower, I'm a Pisces. So under the water... Oh, it's where the good ideas always happen. All of a sudden, it's just like so clear what I've got to do, what I've got to do, and I race out to the studio, and I get to work. You know, it's just
1: yeah.
3: that's my creative process. I'm I, love no, I
2: love
1: it. No, I love it. I'm the same way, the cleaning aspect, though. It's like you think you're procrastinating, <laughs> but you're preparing yeah, yourself.
2: That's right. <laughs> uh, I like um, I've discovered something about myself that I I like to lean on things that are kind of shards of what I've done before.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, it's like having relatives, in, introducing a relative to a relative that has not met that person.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, you're
2: both related through, through family, but you have not met before.
3: Mm-hmm. It's t-
2: total shock. So you know, if I can bring something that I'm familiar with into play with something that is totally unfamiliar, that excites my my interest. And yeah. uh, I don't know, it's just a starting place. And you know, so many composers, uh, and certainly the jazz world, is is dependent upon you know these old standard uh, 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 melodies that were mm-hmm. written part of popular tunes and so on, and then they riff on them and take them into worlds completely unexpected. And the same thing is true in my process. I like to begin with a kind of kernel that is familiar and, and interesting to me and then see where it can go. It's kind of like playing that game of Exquisite Corpse. Have you done that? You know,
1: I've you heard of that game before, but I have not played it before.
2: How does it work? Pull. You fold a piece of paper in three parts and let's say we're drawing a human a, a figure. You draw the head and then you fold your head back and then I draw the torso and then fold that back and the third person draws the legs and then you open it up and you see what you've got.
1: Okay, and I love that.
2: It's a way of coming up with with an image that is a result of three <laughs> three people working together uh, it's interesting the the fr- uh, recent Frida Kahlo and uh, Diego Rivera show yeah. shown that was shown at the yeah. Detroit Institute of Arts had a couple drawings that Frida Kahlo do- did with a good friend of hers, who were bi- that were based on this ex- exquisite corpse corpse idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's a way you know if you can imagine just you draw something and then you fold ha- fold it in half hide half of it and then redraw the half that's missing looking at the half that remains what what can be there you know
3: yeah. other
2: than what what had been there so so it's building on that process so anyway that's that's part of it and then i think the other thing is to just exercise some patience mm-hmm. um you know to see something kind of evolve, take it through a drawing process, whatever. I I have a gut feeling when something is really ready to go to become an actual piece. There's Mm -hmm. something that just triggers. I, I sense that it's right to do that. And I also know when things are not ready. You know, when I need to keep pushing and keep working and just stay with it, stay with it, give it another day, give it a couple of days. Um, And don't be anxious to push it, you know, to put it in the oven until all the ingredients are properly (laughs) into the recipe.
3: You know, and that's
2: another big problem today. People are so anxious to get to the end product that they oftentimes forget the pleasure of, of, of study, you know, of seeing yeah. something evolve. Also, you have to know how to make something evolve, and that's where art education can be really useful. You know,
3: Absolutely. you study with
2: the teacher who helps you to see how you move. Yeah, you, know, you know, they do that in all fields. If you, yep. you know, you study. Uh, you want to write books. You want to create poetry. Mm-hmm. You want to. You want to speak German eloquently. Whatever <laughs> you know. You you need to study in those fields, and teachers can help to guide you in the process of moving your expression forward. Until finally, your own guts and instincts take over, and you say, "I don't need that teacher anymore," you know. And <laughs> yeah. then they ride on your shoulders for years like <laughs> gargoyles, and the you know, yeah. and and you try to get rid of them. And one day you are free, you know. One day I yeah. think we're all free, but. Um, But we shouldn't shy away from the fact that most of us invent very little. Uh, Most of what we do has already been done. And if you can simply accept that, you can go forward much more comfortably because then you start to be interested in the other things that were done by other people. And they become kind of family, a family to which you belong.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: a very wonderful way to see the work evolve.
1: Absolutely. There's a beauty in reinvention, and not yep. enough people see that sometimes, I believe. So speaking of people, are there any people, mentors, or figures that have made an impact in your life and in your career? And if so, how?
2: I'm I'm going to say... I mentioned teachers already. <laughs> um, I, I would say fundamentally... It's uh, very good teachers that I had a chance to experience you know to to experience how their they they expressed values and they they spoke as if there was something I needed to know, but they had the you know they held the insight as <laughs> to what this was all about, and I simply had to trust them as guides in this process of discovery. I like that very much. I mm-hmm. mentioned to you the young teachers that I, I had as a student. Most mm-hmm. of them were recently out of university themselves, and mm-hmm. they brought all the fresh ideas and fresh adventure, and, you know, it was, it was really wonderful. There's nothing better than a great teacher, right? Somebody who yeah. opens up these these experiences to you. And then there's the, the fabulous world of art. <laughs> you know, I was just in New York, saw the Picasso exhibition at MoMA. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I walked through that and I said, oh, oh this is so fabulous for everyone <laughs> who regards themselves as a student.
3: Yeah. You just
2: walk through the exhibition, you go from gallery to gallery, and in each gallery you see a new phase of Picasso's evolution. He never went back, he didn't do the same thing over again. It's like he kept discovering new possibilities. And one I was so interested to read that one of the reasons he discovered the new was by changing the location of his studio.
3: Hmm. By
2: circumstance usually, if he moved yeah. from one place to the next, he would begin to or to get familiar with the new studio. By using some of the materials that were already there, if it was a wooden building, he would carved with wood. If he went down to Valeries in southern France, he he was there with the clay, uh, the people who the ceramists, you know, in the south,
3: mm-hmm. and he
2: decided to use clay, plaster, in another place, et cetera. So he he just created new circumstances for, um, you know, in, for that process of of discovery. I like that uh adventure of going along with other artists and uh, you know there have been so many people who've who've devoted their lives in such remarkable ways uh, just looking carefully. I love Matisse, you know Bonard, mm-hmm. oh fabulous, and contemporary artists who are doing really. Just extraordinary things, you know. That uh, their their vision is—they're um, uh, not hung up
3: <laughs> by the commercial
2: yeah. practice, you know. That—that's—I—I that, I would just say one thing that I think is a huge problem in our time, and that is this whole confusion about um, monetary value associated mm-hmm. with art and the yeah. way it has—you know—it has you know, just done terrible things. And, and that, you mentioned, you know, <laughs> another problem is education, the cost of mm-hmm. education today. So yeah. what? You're going to be an arts student going to a school that charges you $35,000 a year tuition, and you end up with $70,000 worth of debt if you're doing graduate mm-hmm. work or 100000 or whatever. You've yep. got to turn your knowledge into an income-producing commodity. So, of course, you're attracted by Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst and all these mm-hmm. other guys who are selling for multi-millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden you find yourself trapped
3: because
2: yes. you were a student and you made some important discoveries, but you think that repeating those discoveries will help you to establish a commercial commercial viability in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you start repeating yourself and all of a sudden one day you've convinced yourself that if you change that you uh, your the audience will no longer be with you.
3: You will mm-hmm. lose
2: the people who are providing you support.
3: And Absolutely. then
2: you become a slave to your own to your own history. Yeah. This
1: is this is a drag. <laughs> and it's such so, a, a terrible cycle to be stuck in. Yes, yeah. 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 Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's almost like it's not even just becoming trapped in that cycle. It's also that I, again, the invention. How how are you going to be inspired? And if you're doing that same thing over and over yep. and over again because you know it works but are you truly happy with what you're producing? And there's that tug and pull between what those, you know, these modern contemporary artists are trying to do and the people of the past who are like, you know, just, you know, part of my language, but they didn't give a shit. And the reality was I'm going to create for me. And if you like it, great. Awesome. If you don't, I don't care. I'm just going to keep doing what I do and what I love. And not enough Uh people do that today. There's, there's so much emphasis put on oh am i going to be accepted oh is someone going to buy this oh yeah. do these people care about my work um and do you, and do most you of that
2: out? excuse me most of that is is such a temporal thing you know it's mm-hmm. tied into the moment and yeah. one doesn't even think about well 3 years ago will from now will anybody care
3: yeah <laughs> what is <Yeah>. the
2: decision <laughs> You know, it's so many people are living in the moment. You know, the moment has got to be right. And planning mm-hmm. for the future is really about planning for the next month and the next year, maybe yeah. two years. That's really far out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And and, that, and that's very different than planning for a lifetime of studio practice.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: when I work with students, I uh, you know, graduate students, I always said that, I'm only interested in, really in working with you, if you have been convinced up to this point, based on your experiences, that what you're doing is so engaging that you could see committing your your life to doing it and that you have a sense that where you are is only a small fraction of where you can be. And, you know, that's a significant question because some people at the age of, you know, 22 might be, Honest enough to say, hey, I realize what I've done is done. I like it, but I don't think there's anything more there.
3: Mm -hmm. I think I'll be a
2: plumber. You know, that's great. (laughs) Face realities.
1: Exactly. Or they're at that point where they're just like, I don't know. I have no idea. And that's scary.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true.
1: So as our world grows, you know, ever more technologically advanced how are you looking or maybe even not looking to utilize technology to continue to develop your work?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. I, um, I, uh, have, had consciously over the last few years, it really uh, used some new, some new developments. I mean, nothing so radical, but, uh, you know, and I love, like, the, the world of contemporary animation. I just love that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I follow uh, all these, you know, digital means for generating three-dimensional forms in space and so on. I love all of that. I'm just not doing it. But, uh, for example, with the game-playing idea, I got an idea at one point that I'd like to do uh, some work that interacts with the voices of critics. So really? I created uh, several pieces that have images that I subjected to a group of friends who are in the art world who wrote mm-hmm. a critique of those pieces. And then I uh, uh, recorded um, the, the voices uh, of those criticisms, and the voices are built into my pieces as a game. So it's like a game where you, th- like at the carnival, where you throw a ball at a At a stuffed head sitting on a shelf, and if you knock it over, you get a prize. In this case, you throw a ball, you knock it over, and when it's released back, it speaks to you, and it tells you something about the artwork that you're engaged with. Mm -hmm. But the main point of it is that it tells you what the work is not. And the goal is for the viewer to come to a place where they realize that the answer to experiencing the artwork is personal. It's not what anybody else tells you, it's what the way, it's what you bring to the work. And art is created in the place between the viewer's eyes and the artwork itself. So I've explored that in a variety of ways with recorded sound. I had to work with technicians in, in doing all of this. But they're really fun, interactive uh, pieces. I've done uh, quite a bit with... Uh, not quite a bit. I've done some work with laser cutting, uh, mm-hmm. uh, acrylics, and, you know, just being able to make uh, almost lace-like structures, uh, which I could never have done with a pair of scissors. You know, so yeah. not on fabric, but I've used other materials for that. I, I, I'm intrigued with. I, I I love Tyvek. I met uh, an artist who was having a, a, a new type of Tyvek made for her, and her work brought twenty yards of it back to the studio and started putting it through my sewing machine and really love some of the results that were coming from that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I keep my eye open for, for new materials that kind of, you know, that interact with what I'm thinking about at the moment.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, the the work is not uh, material, uh, you know, I'm not driven by process. I, I yeah. feel that materials and process are means to the end. Yeah. But, uh, Uh, But uh, sometimes you can come to a new idea what the end will be by looking at Mm -hmm. innovations with new materials. So it's kind of a give-and-take situation. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting time to live in. There's so much going on, but I don't want to get crazy about all the things (laughs) I don't know.
3: So I try
2: to live comfortably with that, you know. Yeah,
1: Uh, do do what feels right
2: to you. Yeah, yeah. And keep your eye open for opportunities to learn from other people, you know, who are doing neat things. Living here close by to Cranbrook, I stop into the studios occasionally. And, you know, Detroit, there's so much happening uh, here. A lot of people have used resources of the auto industry in this area, and there's a lot of wonderful, you know, innovations going on there. So I encourage that, and the textile field itself is also uh, you know full of contemporary innovations much of it having to do at the micro level however and I'm not uh, personally that's not working uh, for me I don't have mm-hmm. any work work that way and you know with uh, I I love some of the new work that's going on with uh, you know textiles that are responsive to your body or to the way mm-hmm. you think
1: yeah <laughs> and,
2: yeah uh, you know it's fabulous in the fashion world or in the world of uh where we explore the scientific reach of the human being into the mm-hmm. environment into the world at large and new ways of interfacing uh through the textiles that protect our body it's fabulous i I love the yeah. idea I'm just not there uh working with it at this uh, at this time
1: absolutely. What kind of advice would you give someone looking to pursue a career as an artist? or in a creative field.
2: Work hard and be realistic. I think it's important not to play games with oneself, you know, mm-hmm. in just saying I think I can, I think I can. I think it's really important to face realities, you know, to to work hard, to see what can be done, but don't exist in a world of wishful thinking. If mm-hmm. you have a tendency to discover <laughs> that your work is not all that you hope it would be, there's yeah. nothing wrong with making your work an avocation, or as used to be referred to, a hobby. Do something <laughs> yes. you know, let it let it coexist with your. The one of the problems is there are too many people who think that they can be artists today. Mm-hmm. I I mean, that might be an awful thing to say, (laughs) but but I think the world cannot deal with the number of people that are in art schools today thinking Mm -hmm. that they can do something that is going to bring them the rewards that they think are out there at the end of this kind of pursuit. Mm
3: -hmm. However,
2: on the other hand, I have to say, that studying art opens worlds of insight into the potential of being human and yes. what others have done and histories, and you know, bringing your coming to art as an education is extremely important. But, you know, in the area of surgery, for example, mm-hmm. doctors, young doctors, are tested as to whether they're good or not, and if mm-hmm. they're not, they're eliminated. If you play the violin and stand on the concert stage and give a mediocre performance, you're going to hear about it. You can't make believe. So should the visual arts simply be permissive and say, ah, everything's okay, you know, after all, Joe did it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's tough because the most important critic is the person who is involved, who's making the work, and they need to be realistic about it. Um so and when do you do that? You know, it's up to each person, right? Yeah. But um but I th- I think it's I, I I think that is important. I I don't dissuade anyone from exploring from getting involved. Um mm-hmm. but it's a tough world to operate in. It's not yeah. easy. Mm-hmm. The resources for showing work, for selling work, are very limited these days. Yeah. Um And at the, the high end is a very narrow world of opportunity. You know, you can go to, to any city, and, you know, the artists who are really making it there in their local community are very few and far between.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and, uh, you know then there's the idea of being poor, you know, and not yeah. having the physical, uh, you know, that which is necessary to keep life going. How can I make yeah. a life out of what I'm doing?
3: Yep. Do I
2: do I sacrifice my time by having several part-time jobs to support mm-hmm. my artwork or mm-hmm. what? Well, some people can do that for a while, but that... Becomes pretty difficult as well, so yeah. uh, it's it's tough. I just want to. I think it's important that there be some people who speak about the challenges that one faces
3: Absolutely.
2: in this world, as well as the the pluses. I think the pluses are more easy to to deal with, but the reality of um, you know the reality of the situation is a difficult one.
1: Yeah, and it's on important the other to speak
2: hand candidly on it, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is today, one thing that's interesting in our own society today is that there are more subgroups that are developing. You know, neighborhoods, mm-hmm. people are banding together in neighborhoods once again. Communities are supportive of people who are contributing to the community. We know the gardens. Phenomenon in the big cities, et cetera, and mm-hmm. uh, people who play together stay together. You know, it's really nice. I love that. I love being mutually uh, responsive and interactive. But uh, to again, to be realistic, that what what you contribute to the local, um, you know, the local art fair um, is. Important in relationship to the people who look at the work and who are responsive to it, but it doesn't necessarily propel you into the upper reaches of yeah, of yeah of the best of what art has to offer. So you know we we confuse ourselves. And again, isn't it the commercialization of art that that does that so often? I yeah. even suggest don't be don't be bowled over by things with high prices on them, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Learn how to read a work of art. Yeah. And really, really get it. I went to a very big exhibition the other day by a very important person. I can't mention names, but I was so disappointed because what I saw was totally formulaic. He had come up with a formula for producing a series of works, and mm-hmm. the same formula was applied to all of the works. And I think he thought he could get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, not with me. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: There's a, oh, there's this documentary. I, I don't know if you've seen it before, if you heard about it. It was an independent film. I did it through the gift shop. Uh-huh. And it, it highlights a British graffiti street artist, Dancy, Um uh, oh, and this yeah. other man who basically propel themselves through like commercializing his graffiti artwork and it kind of explores that idea of the commercialization of art and how like if you create like this recipe for success you know and and get the PR people involved and get you know all these important people in the field to talk about it can you truly be successful as a commercial artist and it was it was really it was if you've never seen it, it's really interesting documentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and oh. how it plays off of those ideals and I was just like, Whoa, this is crazy. Like when you think about being an artist and being receptive and, and having people, you know, become a fan of your work,
3: yeah. how
1: much of that plays into that whole commercialness of it all. And this guy yeah. completely kinda like it's almost like He's playing a joke on the industry. So I just thought it was really fascinating and it plays off of that idea that you're touching on. And definitely check it out if you get a if you get a chance. I think it's on uh-huh. Netflix. All right, finally, we are at our last question. Where can our listeners learn more about you, your artwork, um, any you know upcoming projects or showing?
2: Well, first of all, buy the book.
3: <laughs> Pardon me, yes.
2: I'm chuckling about that, but it's it's really uh, I'm very proud of it, um, and it's available on Amazon.com uh, at bargain rate. And uh, I I would encourage uh, nothing exists. I have several other books, but nothing exists of this type before so I'm very happy with it. Also I have a website um, it's uh, simply gnodel g-k-n-o-d-e-l dot com and um, uh, you know I have their images of previous works uh, that one can find there and a little bit of background um, and uh, also some other references uh, to go to and I've included on the website a some interviews that were done in conjunction with uh, developing the work for this body of this, this new body of work that I've been talking about.
0: I hope you enjoy this latest episode of Half Sec Highlights. If you'd like to learn more about Gerhardt, visit his site, G Nodel. That's K N O D E L dot com. And, of course, you can get his book, What If Textiles, on Amazon.com. And while you're surfing the web, make sure to stop by HalfStackMag.com. And remember, you can keep up with us on social,
3: all at the handle, at HalfStackMag. Thanks for listening.